Good morning. Welcome on this fine Lord's Day. Thankful for a place to meet and uh, the freedom to do that, and also the moisture that we needed in this semi-arid state that we live in. There are uh, no pressing announcements for this week. I'll be gone about two weeks to General Assembly, however, so I'll remind you again next week. We also have an announcement again. I mentioned it last week, and I'll say it again. Uh, Bill Gillette, um, he sits in the back, usually back there by Gustavo or thereabouts, if you've not met him yet, will be joining the church uh, through public uh, reaffirmation of faith, giving his vows up here uh, next this coming Sunday. Uh, Lord willing. So uh, he's uh, had to leave today. I don't know where he went, but uh, I'm sure he had good good cause. So he will be a new member. He went through membership class. He asked a lot of good questions. He's been going through R.C. Sproul's um, commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I have, uh, which I think is a good uh, introduction uh, to the confession. I've not read the whole thing. I'm going through it slowly. but So that's good. So he knows what he's getting into. There's a long and short of it. Other than that, we have the call to worship, where God calls his people to set aside all distractions and cares on this, the Lord's Day, the resurrection of the Son of God, for the justification of his people. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of thy name. And deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. It's by our hearts and heads, it's not a preparation for worship. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Let us stand and sing him 221 221.
indeed, God Almighty, our heart's desire is to praise you and to be in your kingdom, even if we are the most humble of all servants, God. We're thankful, Lord, for the salvation we have through the blood of Christ Jesus shed for our redemption and his resurrection. I hope on the promise of the future in which he shall return and we shall all be resurrected, God, and given new bodies for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein all sin shall be eradicated and every tear should be wiped away. We long for that day, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. Meanwhile, may we continue to work as unto the Lord and grow in our life and in sanctification and holiness as you've called us and empower us by your spirit, we pray in accordance to the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. We have the responsive reading that is inside the bulletin. It's an insert for Psalm 48, which I'll read the boldface verses, and you'll read the other verses. And it's good to go through the Word of God. Psalm 48, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. They saw it. And so they marveled. They were troubled and hastened away. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with the east wind. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. Let Mount Zion rejoice, let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Mark ye well her bulwarks, consider her palaces that ye may tell it to the generation following. Obviously the city of our God in Old Testament understanding would be where God dwells with his people, Jerusalem, in particular the temple, right? The theological center of the city and of Israel. And it picks up that language of temple in verse 9. 
and of where God dwells, calls it palaces in the city of Zion, verse 12 and 13. Uh, and in the middle there, we saw in verse 5, uh, that is the kings, verse 4 and 5, uh, they were assembled, they passed by together, they saw it and were marveled. They were troubled and hastened away. And again, the kings of the ancient Near East, in this historical context, often were considered demigods, and certainly the most powerful man on earth at the time. They are trembling before our God and king. And his kingdom, as represented by Jerusalem in the Old Testament, uh, as a physical representation of the spiritual reality, of course, that we also manifest to the church of God, wherever we may be. God is with us, and God has uh, brought many uh, kings and rulers, as we know in the history of Christianity in the West in particular, to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, to bow in awe before him. And at the end of the ages, when Christ returns, anyone who has not submitted shall submit, for they will have no choice. Let us go before our Lord and Savior in prayer. We come as your people, God Almighty, as those who have been brought to the city of our Lord and God upon the mountain established in greatness of holiness, Lord God Almighty, because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us for you, our glorious Father above, have loved us with an everlasting love from eternity past. We're grateful, and we stand in awe of this, God, even as we are acknowledging our sins and shortcomings, Lord, even as we are sinners saved by grace, and we acknowledge and stumble, Lord, with thought, words, and deeds and violations of your holy and righteous law and judgments, which are always true. Help us, God, to live a life of humility, of acknowledging our shortcomings and sins as we struggle with them, Lord, throughout the week and even day by day, but always with the hope behind the repentance, God, that you are faithful and just, that you will forgive us all our righteousness, you will cover our sins. You have indeed covered them through Christ Jesus our Lord. And as our Father, we can come before you as your adopted children into the kingdom of God, the household of faith. We can come boldly into the Holy of Holies, because of what Christ Jesus has done for us, Lord. Not because we are worthy, not because we've obeyed enough, not because you looked down the quarters of time and said you've done enough good works, so I will save you, but rather through free, unmerited favor. Praise be to your name. And so, Lord, may we not come with our feelings of obedience, importance, and adequacy, but rather, Lord, through the blood of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and your mercies and long-suffering for us because of the covenant of grace given to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask God for our family situations. That is, we, all of us have family. Some of us have our immediate family with us, children with us, Lord. And others, our children have grown up and left the household, and yet we are still fathers and mothers and husbands and wives, Lord, and perhaps husbands-to-be for those who are going to get married soon. And so we ask God that you would be with us, that we would Follow your will of holiness in our family relations, in all relations of life. <clears throat> For the husbands to lead their family and their wives, Lord God Almighty, uh, to lead in love, but lead nevertheless, to stand firm in their calling and responsibility and duty to work hard, sacrificially, God, for their family, especially for their wives. We ask, God, that you be with the wives to submit to the husbands and to work hard in their family as well, Lord, to take care of the children to care of the family, to support the husband as a helpmate, Lord, uh, uniquely fitted for him and he for her. And we ask God Almighty that you would strengthen our families in the day and age that hates the family and wishes to destroy it and undermine it and 
more and more ways, God. We pray, God, for the fathers and the mothers here as well, that they would love their children, they would discipline their children, that they would, of course, be kind and appropriate in proportion to the sin and the discipline needed upon the children, God. Instruct them in righteousness and give them, Lord, understanding of how to live life in the kingdom of man in which we find ourselves in, in the kingdom of America, the nation of America. Lord, that they would have busy hands instead of idle hands and have uh, an ability to take care of themselves if need be, God. And, of course, take care of the parents as they grow up as adult children. We pray for our children that you would protect them, spirit of truth. We're thankful that they have the church to instruct them, but they also have the parents more so in many ways in the church, for they live with them and are with them every day, uh, to acknowledge and see their strengths and weaknesses and foster in them a greater holiness and greater ability uh, that you've gifted the children, God, and that the children, Lord, would acknowledge these things and submit to their parents and love their parents and support them and help them, and as they grow older and have more ability and opportunity to use their strengths, Lord, to use their energy, to use their insight, uh, to assist the family, Lord, instead of undermining the family, which is what our society seems to uh, rejoice in. And so, God Almighty, we pray for unity within our families, unity within our couples, and support, Lord, for the singles among us, God, uh, that they would know that uh, we are praying for them, and that we will try to help them as best we can as well. And that all of us, Lord, are part of the family of God, and that we are here not only because of our theological and convictions and the unity that we have in the public display of baptism into the body of Christ, uh, but also, God, because we take seriously the biological family and the relationship that we have as uh, citizens of this nation, our God and Savior, help us, Lord, to continue to grow as families and couples and singles in obedience to your word and love for one another in the context of the church. And so we pray for the church in particular, God Almighty, for the leadership uh, to do what they can to carry on, to protect the sheep, uh, to help and counsel and to admonish as needed. We pray, Lord, for wisdom in dealing with the funds of the church and investment, especially in such a volatile economy, that we would be wise in these matters, God, and always submit to your providence, knowing that we are limited in our understanding often of what the best path is, and we can have disagreements, God, the disagreements as adults. We pray, Lord, for the members of the church to continue to grow and to uh, follow your word and to love one another, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, to carry one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, God Almighty. And although we can't be best friends with one another, Lord, may we be aware of pressing matters that are serious upon our family and that we ask during prayer time and throughout the week, God, that you would hear our prayers through the blood of Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to continue to be a church, a church that follows the pattern of loving one another, of being the family of God, mothers and brothers and sisters and brothers, Lord, amongst each other in accordance to your word. We ask, God, that you would overturn the law supporting the murder of the unborn child, what they euphemistically called abortion. Precious God, that uh, these things would come to pass and that the leadership of this nation that has influence and ability uh, to do these things and say, overturn them in the state level, of course, as we have a federalized system, and that they would do the right thing, even if they're not believers, God, that you have written the law of God upon their hearts, and they know these things to be right and wrong, and that they would stand firm in spite of the mobs of bloodlust around them. Precious Lord and Savior, we pray for other godly laws to be maintained and supported, for, again, laws that would protect the family, uh, that would protect the children, Lord, especially in the schools as things get worse. And we ask God for the immoral uh, practices outside of the law, outside of wicked laws that are, certainly exist like abortion, 
but the influence that we have in society, that others have in society through the media, um, through the news, through Hollywood, through movies and TV series of immorality, that those shows and movies will fall flat on their faces, God, and not spread their uh, woeful influence through this nation, especially upon our churches and our young people. Gracious Spirit of Truth, and love. We thank you for watching over us and giving us a society, although in many ways we mourn for her, but we are still at peace. We have a relative amount of prosperity compared to vast portions of the world and security, God, that these things would be maintained through your providence. We think in particular, Lord, and thankful, God, for those uh, in the military, those in the police, and those in the medical field, and other fields of service and help for the public body, that you would be with them, especially those who are Christians, God, for Simon and Tali and others, Lord, who are in the military, that you protect them and guide them and watch over them, Lord, in such an environment that's uh, different than what civilians understand in many ways, Lord. The pressures are different in many ways. May you be with them to withstand the negative peer pressure, that they would be outstanding and do well in their jobs and persevere therein, that they would have access to good church and a chaplain, and barring that God, that they would continue to read and pray in accordance to your word, we ask. And help, Lord, other Christians who are in all those other hard fields of labor and work, the police and the medical, and it's hard upon them to see such terrible things around them, and the crimes and the uh, ailments upon the bodies and deaths and the like, Lord, that could be very hard upon them, that they would persevere therein and be a witness to those around them in the lost and dying world of darkness. Help us, we pray, here at Providence today, to continue to worship you, to honor you, to listen to your word and grow thereby, we pray for your glorious name's sake. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy we thank you god almighty for the ability to give these tithes and offerings as a token that is a part of the whole of our life and all that we have as stewards of the things you've given us lord that are ultimately yours to be used wisely in your kingdom's sake and in particular these tithes and offerings god to be used and multiplied for the kingdom work and the preaching of the gospel in particular in your name we pray amen While we are standing, let us go ahead and sing Psalm 56. Psalm 56.
reading of the Ten Commandments, which is a green insert inside of the hymnal, Trinity Psalter hymnal. There's two sides to the green sheet. The one side has the Ten Commandments. Let us say it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. As we read from the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and so we are reading here in Leviticus uh, some applications of the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God is the same everywhere in all times because God is the same everywhere in all times. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. Let us listen attentively to the word of God, Leviticus 19, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Let us pray. In short order, God, we read here uh, the command of holiness and godliness in the life of those who follow the Messiah. Here, those who follow the Messiah to come, and we who have followed the Messiah who has already come in time and history and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And so, Lord, we see here in negative form that the general admonition to love our neighbor, which means on the flip side, not to hate our neighbor, with a particular application here, reminding us, God, that the call of holiness involves, yes, prayer, yes, the sacraments, the reading of the word, fellowship, love of the saints, God Almighty, a love that is not vague, but particular, that follows the law of God, not just privately, but publicly. Help us therein to be encouraged and to sustain what we know is true. In your name we pray. Amen. We recall that we read Leviticus twice already. You're wondering if I'm going to preach the entire book. I am not. We read about the general call to be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. Mentioned several times in Leviticus, be ye holy, for the Lord your God is holy. This means that we are supposed to be morally separate from sin, And on the other hand, consecrated or set aside unto the Lord our God in holiness and righteousness. Holiness simply means to be set apart. But part of the confusion, that's why some of the background here, reminder of what I preached on, is there's a number of terms that mean the same thing in the Bible. Holiness. To be hallowed. To hallow the name of the Lord our God, as we read last week. Sanctification. Godliness. right? Consecration. Separation. It's all saying the same thing different ways of describing it. 
This truth that we are called away from sin and unto righteousness was emphasized in the last sermon about the priests of the Old Testament called to not profane God's name, that is, to eschew and flee from sin, to be separate from it morally, as well as to be called to hallow his name, they were told, that is, to treat him special and to follow righteousness. This roughly matched the description in the New Testament where we are called to kill the old man and to revive the new man, to kill old sinful habits and to live unto righteousness. Mortification is called the killing of sin and sinfulness in our life by the power of the Spirit, and vivification or living unto righteousness and obedience. That was there in the Old Testament. It's here in Leviticus. Again, it's different languages. Yet another terms. Paul also talks about putting off and putting on. So that's a nicer way of saying killing <laughs> and reviving. It's all the same message, the call of sanctification, of being set aside and apart morally from this world. And I emphasize the morality, of course. It's not like we're supposed to wear red badges or something across our forehead and say, look, I'm a Christian. That's not the problem we have today. The problem we have is lots of immorality seeping in and tempting us, and we are called to resist against that. All of this language and the laws, in fact, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, because the New Testament assumes the morality that is the moral laws of the Old Testament, they quote them, they're not going to repeat them all the time, shows the depth and complexity of the Christian life. We are called, we are the called out ones, you can say, hyphenated. We are the called out ones from the world of moral degeneracy. Yet the call is not to save ourselves through obedience. This is not us trying to justify ourselves before God Almighty. The Christian life, rather, is based upon the grace of God in Christ. Jesus lived and died not only for us, we are justified by his blood, yet he lives in us through the power of the Spirit. And so that is the call of sanctification, a life of obedience to the law of God. That's the standard of holiness. It is easy and to fall into talking about being holy and being sanctified and being like God and Christ Jesus. And it turns out to be some kind of vague understanding. What exactly does that look like? What is the standard of holiness is another way of asking the question. Clearly the standard of holiness is the word of God. The law of God directs us and shows us the path of sanctification. Holiness is defined by God's moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments and unpacked, of course, in the covenant of grace with various details such as listen to preaching, go to church, be baptized. Those are also commands of God. They're not suggestions. They fall under, of course, the fifth commandment and the first table of the law as well. However, I think it's important uh, that we go here in particular and unpack the holiness through the law of God. And not only that, but that part of that holiness and obedience to the law of God, not perfect obedience to be sure, not us trying to save ourselves through obedience, but a desire nevertheless because we are saved, is that it's public. The life of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus by God's mercy, is not reducible to a private affair. We know this intuitively when we encourage one another to not be just good Christians, but to be good citizens. That's a public affair. And so as God urged the Old Testament church, as we read here in Leviticus, and I'll unpack this 
verse in the second half of the sermon. And so we too are called unto such holiness. Holiness through the law, first point. Holiness through the law. As an Old Testament expectation, the moral law was all over the place, as we know, in the Bible, preached by not just Moses, but the prophets in particular, assumed and practiced even before the Mosaic law, that is, the giving of the Mosaic era and the covenant therein. We reviewed a little bit of that in Leviticus as well. We read about it as I go through Proverbs in the afternoon, this afternoon or this evening. Proverbs assumes and talks about the law of God, how it's a beautiful thing, how we get wisdom from God's law, his judgment, his justice, his equity, all these different words for the same idea. And in fact, we are called to follow the holy law of God. It was given to Israel out of God's grace and love, we must remember. They were brought out of Egypt. They were delivered. They were saved. It's the same word there. From the torments and the slavery of Egypt, which turned out, as in God's providence, to be a metaphor for deliverance from sin. The land of Goshen and the like. And then God gave them the law. First the grace. We have grace. And then the gratitude. We show the gratitude by following God's holy commands. Be ye holy as I am holy. As the Lord your God is holy. It is based upon grace. It begins with grace. And it's sustained by grace. We are not saved because we obey the law. But rather, we obey the law because we are already saved, justified by Christ Jesus, and being sanctified by his Holy Spirit. In other words, we are saved unto a life of holiness, a life of following God and his word, and the law in particular, which is not very popular, unfortunately, in many Christian circles, and certainly not when I grew up that way. Maybe it's changed somewhat. But we need it more and more these days. It's clearly there in the Bible. So I'm going to unpack that from a different perspective. I'm going to go through the Old Testament prophecies, some of them, about the law of God. And then show how that has been picked up and fulfilled in the New Testament in a great measure. We read of Christ in particular, first and foremost here, because Christ is the root of our sanctification. Psalm 40, verse 8 and 7. You're going to recognize this passage, I believe. Psalm 40, verses 8 and 7. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Recall that? It's quoted in the book of Hebrews. It's saying Christ has come to fulfill the will of God. And that will is not some vague idea, some general feeling, but in particular, <laughs> delight to do your will, O oh my God, and your law is within my heart. Christ Jesus, as prophesied in the Old Testament, the Messiah to come is the one who has the law of God in his heart. Christ did not come to destroy the law, brothers and sisters, he says in Matthew, but to fulfill it in our stead. And in our place, he obeyed it and thought, word, and deed perfectly as the second Adam. And that is the ground of our sanctification. Because that is true, we can carry on in the Christian life knowing that our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus and he has obeyed the law for us. And we can obey now, not out of trying to save ourselves, but rather because we are saved. But that's not the only prophecy of old. 
fulfilled in Christ. And being fulfilled in Christ doesn't mean it's irrelevant to us. It's obviously very relevant. What Christ has done for us is not only for us, but in us, as we shall see. So in Ezekiel, for example, the work of Christ is expressed this way. In Ezekiel 36, verse 24 and following, this is the great passage of the Old Testament, that in Jeremiah 31, which is a prophecy of the New Testament era, or New Covenant era. Testament is a Another word for covenant there in Latin. Ezekiel 36, 24 and following. For I will take from, take you from among the nations and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. He's purifying him what? Unto holiness. He doesn't have to use the word holy. He's obviously talking about the idea of moral purity and separation. Through the imagery of sprinkling. That's one reason why we sprinkle in our baptisms. I will give you, he says in verse 26, a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is a heart responsive. A stony heart is non-responsive to God. It's hardened against his will and submission to him. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. (laughs) Salvation is not away from holiness and obedience, but unto holiness and obedience. That's prophesied in Ezekiel. In Jeremiah 31, we read, verse 31 to 33, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. But this is the covenant, he says in verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The language of the covenant. So in Ezekiel, he says, they're going to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments. That is the law of God. Those are other words for the law of God. And in Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to write it on their hearts. So it's going to be internal and external. That's the call of what it means to be a follower of the Messiah. Christ did it himself. He had the law of God run on his heart, as uh, both as a man, of course, and as second member of the Trinity. And here, these prophecies are fulfilled. We read them fulfilled explicitly. Jeremiah in Hebrews 8.10, for example, where it quotes Jeremiah directly in Hebrews 8.10. I won't read that because it's quoting Jeremiah. I already read Jeremiah to you. Write the law of God upon their hearts. That's the picture of being born again. God says, I'll give you a new heart. That's a heart with my law on it. That is, you're committed to it. You have a new way of thinking and doing and and living. You're going to be like Jesus who says, my will, my food, he says, is do the will of the Father. To highlight how serious it was to him, it was like eating. Eating kind of serious. Without eating, you die. The other way is described in the New Testament, the law of God, as part of the Christian life. We're not saved from the law of God, but we're not saved by our obedience to the law of God, but we are saved unto obedience of the law of God. All those prepositions make a difference, don't they? <laughs> they make a difference. Romans 13, 8 and following. Romans 13, 8 and following. Here we read Paul writing to the church at Rome. As, we've, as I went over last week, 
in Romans 12, for example, he says, your life is supposed to be a living sacrifice. So he's quoting the imagery of the Old Testament, saying it's still relevant, that moral truth behind it is still relevant in the New Testament era, although we don't have to kill animals anymore. In a similar manner here, and more strongly, actually, he quotes the Old Testament law, which is our law, because it's God's law. Owe no man anything except to love one another. Well, that sounds great and wonderful, and we've talked about this before. People like to use the word love because they put all kinds of other ideas behind the word love. It turns into a wax nose, doesn't it? But not in the Bible. Love is not whatever you feel like, but it's defined and delimited by the law of God. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You say you love your neighbor, but you lie about him? I don't think you're loving him. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandments, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's just a summary statement about love. Love, the statement of loving your neighbor as is a summary of the law of God, particularly the second table, commandments 5 through 10. In Romans 8, a very uh, wonderful and fascinating passage. I remember reading this as I was coming out of my confusion about the law of God um, many, many years ago. Romans 8, verse 4, we read this, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Yes, Christ fulfilled it for us. That is, he obeyed the law in our stead. He was not only punished, he suffered for us, he also obeyed for us, and therefore his righteousness is imputed to us, his moral perfection by faith alone. But also in us, that the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, that is, according to wickedness and sin, and trying to save ourselves, for example, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit, what? That writes the law of God on our hearts, as prophesied in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. It's the law. Sanctification involves the law, holiness, the Christian life. Love, yes. Love is a motivation. Yes, you have to have love. You can do right by your neighbor and hate him in your heart. Obviously, that's wrong. But you're supposed to do both. Do right by them and be considerate and loving in the sense of you care for your neighbor and want to do good to them. Both outward and inward. The Ten Commandments are assumed in the New Testament, quoted as I showed you in Romans 13 and elsewhere in the New Testament, especially in Romans 13, and even Christ talks about them. Christ tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments. The call of the Christian life. Again, not for justification. And if by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Romans 11.4 and following, where he highlights that fact that just being a Jew, just being circumcised, and following the law of God is not what justifies you and gives you to heaven, but rather Christ Jesus and faith in him. And then you are transformed by the power of the Spirit, and you, then you live unto obedience and sanctification, all, although how, uh, to some degree imperfectly, of course, the law, in other words, is the pathway and the definition and the standard of the right holiness, the right way of walking and living before our Lord and Savior.
And of course, not just outward actions either, but inward, and not just inward, but thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hence the language of the New Testament about the fruit of the Spirit. If you notice, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't mention the law of God, and unfortunately some Christians get confused by that. They think, well, therefore, I don't have to do anything about the law of God. I can just do the fruit of the Spirit, which, again, can be vague terms if they're not delimited that is set aside and explained in the context of God's law. Love one another. Be patient with one another. Okay, they killed my wife. They're going to burn down the church with everyone in it. You should be patient with them, not call the cops. That's unloving. This is literally how people talk these days. You've seen it. And that is heinous. It is exactly not what God means by the fruit of the Spirit. But he highlights the fruit of the Spirit in New Testament age to emphasize the inward dispositions and hearts and inclinations that when you do obedience, again, it should be in the context of your care, your long-suffering. You do put up with a fair amount of wrongdoings, although there are limits again. You're not called to let people murder your church and your family and the like. The fruit of the Spirit and New Testament holiness go hand in hand. And, of course, Paul assumes the fruit of the Spirit, long-suffering and joy, kindness, Self-control is one of them. That's clearly defined by the law of God. You have no self-control if you're breaking God's law all the time. They go hand in hand like this, it's assumed. So that's holiness, the holiness through the law of God, not as though we are, again, justifying ourselves and getting our ticket to heaven. But that holiness is also in society or public, not just individual and private behind closed doors. We see that in the overview of Leviticus 19, given to the entire nation. The Lord spoke to Moses in verse 1, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, not just the priests. As we saw in uh, chapters 22 or 21 therein. And say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's not just the priests that have to be holy and separate and morally upright, but all of you as a nation with national laws, as individuals living in a nation and following those laws. And what you find out in chapter 19 is all Ten Commandments are there. Not in the same order, but the applications of the Ten Commandments are in Leviticus. I'm not going to go through that with you, uh, but just to point that out to you, that it's no accident, because it's the Ten Commandments that give us the, the form and the shape of holiness amongst each other in society. Now, of course, it includes some ceremonial sections here in Leviticus, that is, those unique to the Jewish state of affairs, where God used the ceremonial system and the priesthood to teach them of Christ to come. That's done away with. The whole book of Hebrews hammers that home. No more priesthood, no more temple, no more sacrifices. We don't need that. Christ has come, and this is finished. And so we can go therein, and through Leviticus, where we don't find ceremonial laws, you find the moral law. That is, applications in particular of the Ten Commandments applicable for us today. And I'm going to go through some of those here. And a sample, I count about 11 or so commands in this chapter that deal with public morality between us, not something behind a closed door. Public morality, of course, is not necessarily legal laws. It doesn't get that specific, interestingly enough. It just tells you the moral principle we're supposed to follow. It can be uh, social expectations, for example, and peer pressure like shunning. I think you would shun murderers. People who are unrepentant murderers running around threatening you. You think you want to stay away from them uh, and the like. So there's different ways of applying 
these 11 or so, I'm not going to go through all 11, commands, moral commands that deal with social matters and interactions between peoples and between us. And I take by public anything greater than in-family relationships, so between families, between neighbors, in communities and the like. And of course it could be immediate neighbors, citizens of the same town, or outright strangers new to your country or your community. We have economic morality, economic holiness, probably should call it that, economic holiness. So in verse 9 through 10, verses 9 through 10, this is clearly public, this is clearly holiness, this is clearly not ceremonial law, although it's culturally bound in the sense that we're not an agrarian society anymore. I don't grow anything in my my yard other than grass that's getting brown now because of the water restrictions. So there's other ways to fulfill this obvious moral command. Verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, the excess. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So God set up a system saying, here in the agricultural society, which is like, all of the world for thousands of years until like the last 150 years or so in the West of industrialization. Save some for the poor. You have a social, public obligation to help the poor. Is what he's telling them. Is that only for the Jews? And the, Hey, we're in the New Testament. we got more freedom to be more Scrooge-like. <laughs> really? And yet the arguments, of course, over and over again in the New Testament, there's more grace and therefore more obligation, and thus more love we're supposed to exercise for one another. I'm not going to go to the obvious to our congregation, as we know. He's not saying feed the irresponsible poor. Paul's very clear. If you don't work, you don't eat, he says in Timothy. That's there in the Old Testament as well. But barring that exception, obviously, uh, this clearly flies in the face of whatever I own, I can do what I want, which is taught in America, left, right, and center. God tells them to consider their poor neighbors, and even the stranger. More economic holiness. Paying your workers on time, verse 13. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Now, this reminds me of when we visited Germany and we found out uh, that they have farmer's market. And the way ours is, and ours is just kind of a weekend thing to make a little extra money, apparently, with small little businesses. This is like they have small fridges like this, and they have to go every other day or so to the farmer's market to get food to put in their fridge because their fridge isn't very big to carry a lot of food for the day, for the week. They need to get it much quicker. There's this urgency that we don't have. We just buy something that's there for a few weeks. We have a huge fridge. Similar thing here. Back then, again, for thousands of years, all across the world, you need your wages. You need to get to the farmer before it gets dark and you can't eat. Or whatever else you need the food or the money for as well. Hold off payments. When companies hold off payments because they want to make a quick buck, that's a problem. They have the advantage often because they're the ones with the job and offering and giving you pay and you're at their mercy of hoping they pay you and that you could uh, get a good job to provide for your family. If if workers need the money like today to stave off inflation, 
Well, that's a problem. Companies have a moral obligation, in other words, to pay in a timely manner. And I know you're going to like this part. As does the government, who is quick to cash your check, but it takes it forever to get you the check they owe you. <laughs> so you cash it. Isn't that convenient? It's a small thing, to be sure. And yet it's a matter of public justice, isn't it? It accumulates and builds up over time. These are just small little examples. I'm not trying to um, rock the boat. I can think of some examples that may rock the boat. But to get us to think in a different mindset, uh, maybe I think a lot of us do. But again, to push back in conservative circles, it's all about individualism. It's all about private piety. But holiness before God is also public and deals with public justice. And perhaps if the churches had preached more, I don't know, I could be wrong, about public justice, Leviticus, for example, people wouldn't be hogtied and attracted to the wrong view of public justice. And so these are two examples, besides many more, as you know, I preached through Micah about uh, the middle class, for example, being gutted. There in Micah, he talks about the middle class. He's saying, this is wrong. It's not just the poor God's concerned about, but anybody, anywhere else where there's unjust oppression and undermining of their wealth and prosperity is wrong. And those are public matters. Social matters, whatever word you want to use besides SJW, right? Here's an example, another example related to this principle. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him is not just a general exhortation. He gives a specific application. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you until the morning. That's a form of stealing. That's what he's saying. It's a general principle, particular application. So the general principle of not cheating your neighbor then would include the Lord's Day. They're cheating you of worship and of being with God's people when they say, you must work on the Lord's Day. And virtually every company does that these days. I don't want you to call it a vast conspiracy against the Sabbath. Not really a conspiracy, it's out in the open. You must work. You're going to have this job on the Lord's Day. But I, but I don't can hire you. Happened to me. I remember my first job trying to get a job at Walmart back in the 90s. We first got married. Right behind our house. It'd be great. I'd be there early on time. It could be. I said, I'll work weekends. I'll work nights. I'll work the crappy jobs. I don't care. You got to work Sunday, he said. Okay. I didn't. I was able in that economy to find a better job. But not, we're not always blessed that way. It's robbing them of their time for worship and rest. Christians should care about, therefore, labor laws especially as the impact upon the Lord's Day. Again, that's not popular in conservative economic theory. But it's clearly part of our heritage and the law of God. Not just economic holiness, but judicial holiness, impartiality to the poor and weak, verse 15. You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Someone did you wrong. You don't say they didn't do me wrong because he's a rich man and I want his money. You say he did me wrong even though he's a rich man and I still want his money. I want to be best friends or whatever the case is. You acknowledge what it is. It is wrong. Now what you do about it could be a different matter. You may just say, whatever, I'm not going to bring him to the courts. That's your prerogative. You can exercise that long-suffering, right? One of the fruits of the Spirit. But in your heart and your words, you must acknowledge what they did was wrong. Whether they're rich or whether they're poor. Whether they're mighty, um, the idea of mighty here may be economically mighty, um, although it's a very broad term. So just anybody with social clout in society, and we have a lot of those, are usually in Hollywood and politics, or big captains of industry. You shouldn't give them preferential treatment 
just because they're rich. Maybe if they're godly, you may give them preferential treatment because they're part of your church. That's a different matter. But here, and with respect to justice and judgment, which are very broad terms, it doesn't necessarily mean the courts, per se. The illustration I gave was your neighbor's rich or something, and you want to give him preferential treatment because, hey, he's rich and you want to get all the money. No, that's wrong. That's being partial or partial to the poor. Whatever, they're poor. They can't push back. They can't come after me. I can get away with it. That's one of the dangers of the rich. Like, I can get, I, I could buy people off. I could buy judges. I have influence and backroom deals. These things happen today, as we know. That's wrong. It should not be done. It should not be tolerated. And the churches should not put up with it. Justice, in other words, should be a Christian theme. It is there. It is part of God's holy law. And it deals with God's law in the public sphere. Social holiness, not just economic and not just judicial, but social holiness, helping the helpless. We often think of the handicap, and we have laws regarding parking and ramps that help the handicap. I don't know the history behind that. You may say it would have been taken care of by the free market. I think we're finding out more and more that that's not always true. But it's a law now. You've got to have so many parking spaces, right, at places and handicap and whatnot. Older people being fooled out of their money with a phone call scam. We know it happens. That should be especially wrong. I think phone, phone call scams are wrong already. But to prey upon those who are weak in that regard is especially bad. That's the point of this text, which is verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. So it's not just physical handicap. It's also mental problems and mental limitations. Not just only the blind and the deaf. This is what a particular of a general principle, which is anybody who's helpless, frankly. We mentioned that in Sunday school class in the larger catechism. Jason pointed that out, that we're supposed to be considerate of the limitations of those under us or those we can influence. And we kind of have this uh, lie again in America that every man is equally competent and equally able to see through lies. It's simply not true. Just not true. I think of all those poor kids who were told by their parents... Uh, by their schools, by their counselors, by advertisement, by politicians, and maybe their churches, go in debt, get any kind of degree, it doesn't matter. And then on the flip side, we tell them, it's your own dumb fault, you went in debt. Well, not if they were deceived. I mean, if you have a car, and you were deceived about it, what do we have? We at least have a lemon law. Right? There's a reason for that. Because you're not experts in the car, and you can't always grab a mechanic when you need it. So you have a little car. We have a law because the law understands you can be hoodwinked. You're not an expert. I would argue the same thing financially in some cases. Like young kids who are 18, they don't know any better. Their parents didn't know any better, apparently, and they were lied to. Whatever the case is. How that looks in practice, I'm not going to argue that. I don't have an answer necessarily. But that it is morally a problem and a public problem, a public problem Christians should be aware of, I would argue. We should not, in other words, make it hard for those already limited by shortcomings to make it even harder for their shortcomings. Christian holiness includes consideration of the helpless. None of these texts are, of course, unique to the Jewish state. None of them are ceremonial, deal with the temple or animals or the land as such, but applications of the general principle, often of the fifth commandment, but not only of that, of the seventh and eighth. And all that summed up here. In verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor, nor bear sins because of him. And it is a public matter. He's saying you can't sit there and ignore your neighbor when he has 
a serious enough sin that he has to be rebuked and just say, whatever, you do your own thing. It's explaining and talks there in verse 17, if you're not rebuking your neighbor, there's a problem there. It is, I would argue, paralleling with the idea of hating your brother in your heart. Like we saw in the other verses, you should not do unjustly, you should not steal, and thus you should give the cloak back, you shall give money, you should give the wages, I'm thinking of the other text, uh, to him uh, before it's too late, for example, as a particular application. This is a general admonition. Don't hate your brother. Here's a particular application. Rebuke him. It's not every man himself. Not every man is his own island. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not Christian morality. It's the flip side of love your neighbor, obviously. And in fact, we read in the next verse, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Those two verses sandwiched together. Don't hate love. And part of love involves rebuke. When it's required and when it's necessary, I'm not going to go into all the details of that. Uh, we know, again, love suffers long and is patient, and so you put up with a lot of smaller sins, as it were, and prickling and things like that, maybe even a loss of, of uh, property or funds sometimes. You just don't go after them. You lost a couple hundred bucks. It happens. It happened to me a couple times. It just that's, that's the way it is. But if it's bad enough, you know, why are you beating your children? Not spanking, beating your children. We all know the difference. You need to go talk to them because you love, your, you love the children. You want to protect them. <laughs> and you love him because you want him to stop the beatings. So there are times to rebuke. Not that you rebuke every time. That's not the point here. Every little thing happens, you're just going, always, always going after them. But love says, you know, my holiness is not just private. It's public. And it deals with one another. It's social. Brothers and sisters, we are called unto a life of holiness as defined by God's law. And God's law includes moral truth that deals with social matters. Again, I don't have all the answers to everything, in particular how to apply it, but I know, and I think we all know, injustice when we see it, unholiness and wickedness when we see it in the public sphere. And we are called to rebuke them. This passage of verse 17 especially reminds us, that's why I picked it, that holiness is not just individual matter, but a group matter, a public matter, a social matter, whatever other word you want to use. This is what love is. To refuse to rebuke, I would argue, implies a form of hate and uncaring. The call of holiness means following God's law, which was put on our hearts as prophesied of old. But it also means following God's law in and for society, for the good of our neighbor, especially the Christians. May we continue a life of holiness, not only in our families, but in our public relationships in all parts of, God, of life by God's power, I pray. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty, for your word. We thank you, Lord, and ask that we would learn to apply it and understand it and live it as best we can, knowing that we will fall short. Nevertheless, your spirit is with us, and we have your mercy and your promises to cover our sins. May it rather be an encouragement, God, to read these texts, for they give us a guidance, Lord, because we have a longing as Christians to do the right thing, and this is part of doing the right thing. May it help give us better direction, I pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 356, 356.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Thank you.